and if parents so choose. Say again, sorry. Toddler church, three to six. Nursery is below three. I don't know what's going on there. There we go. We have, from the beginning of the year, been discussing the topic, um, that sounds stoic, doesn't it, of knowing God. Um, But it's the most important topic that we can ever discuss because knowing God is not just a study of God. Um, Again, if you remember way back, we talked about um, two words, theology, and theology is Theos, God, Logos, the word or the study of. And so theology means the study of God. But God doesn't want us just to study him. He wants us to know him. And that's the word theognosis. Okay? You guys are supposed to be using that word, putting it into print. We'll get it in the dictionary and then it becomes a word. But anyways, but theognosis is to know God. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And again, the word to know is the word for a relational knowledge, an intimate knowledge. There is the word oida in Greek, which means a factual knowledge. And so you may factually know about gravity. Many of us factually know about President Obama. Many of you factually know about Governor Purdue. But if I turned around and asked you if you intimately knew, relationally knew President Obama, or Governor Purdue, how many would put their hand up? Now, if you're the roofer, and you factually know by gravity, and you take one step too far to the left or too far to the right, you can turn around and become what? Very intimately and relationally familiar with, with gravity. Okay? You, you, okay? I don't think right now in, in, in the plane that we're living, we're going to become oida, or we're going to become gnosko, knowing that kind of a knowledge with President Obama or Governor Purdue. Okay, I do have a picture with my kids with Governor Purdue. Isn't that pretty cool? And I have a picture of Jessica shaking the hand of President Bush, who was then there um, running for office, and she just happened to be at one of the places that he was speaking, and they shoved a bunch of people behind him because it was getting filled, and she happened to be one of the people who was getting shoved behind, and he just happened to turn around and shake hands of people, and one of them was Jessica. So anyway, so I got a picture of him, of her shaking President Bush's hand, but he wasn't president then. But that's still a whole lot different than what? Knowing. But this is pretty cool because God wants us to not just know about him. God wants us to to know him. He wants us to have a relationship. And so we've used that illustration through the, the, the whole year about the ocean and that many people know the ocean. They know about the ocean. They're living in Omaha, Nebraska. And they're going on Wikipedia. And they, they're understanding the salt content of the ocean. They're understanding the things that are contained in the ocean. They may understand that, uh, that, you know, what the ocean underlayment looks like. But they have never been to the ocean. And then there are people who have gone, in a sense, to the ocean. They've been in proximity to the ocean. But they're content at playing on the beach. And that's kind of how it is with God. There are a lot of people who talk about God. They theoretically know a lot about God. And for 23 years, I knew a lot about God. I went to church every Sunday. I was active in the youth group. Helped my dad count the money. But the guys at school thought I was pretty cool. And the people at church thought I was good. And if you know anything about that, that means that what? There was a Jekyll Hyde thing happening there. There were two different people living in the same body. 
And so I knew a lot about God. I knew that Jesus Christ was God. I knew that he had died for my sins. I knew that he was buried. I knew that he rose again from the dead. But you know what? I didn't know him. And I remember the time when God brought himself to me and made me realize that if I was going to die at that moment, I was going to hell. And that it was more than religion. It was a relationship. And that's what this is all about. Again, this is the most important topic. And so as we've, we've gone through this, trying to remind myself and remind everybody else as I remind myself that, again, this isn't a study of God. This is a way for us to know more about him. And so we've talked about the existence and exclusiveness of God, that he is and that he is the only God. We've talked about the composition of God, that he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, as one God, he has revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that while Jesus was on the earth, though he is the Son, yet he was Yahweh in the flesh. God incarnate, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. We then looked at the attributes of God. We considered his natural attributes, that he is limitless in his knowledge, in his power, in his abilities. We his vocational attributes, that he is the creator, he is the savior, he is the judge. His moral attributes, we've looked at his holiness, we looked at his righteousness. We've looked at his goodness. We've looked at his, and in that goodness, we looked at his, his grace and his mercy. We've looked at his love. We looked at his zeal, the zealousness of God. And in the zealousness of God, we considered the jealousy of God, that God is a jealous God, and that he doesn't want his children running after other gods. In fact, he calls it adultery. Idolatry is one the same as adultery when it comes to your relationship with God. I always thought that was kind of fun because so many times when I'm running through those, those um, works of the flesh from Galatians chapter 5, a lot of times when I say idolatry, it can sound like adultery, and adultery can sound an awful lot like idolatry, and you kind of get our tongues all slipped up. But with God, you know what? It's all the same anyway. And so when we're running after money, when we're running after things, we're not running after God. And God says... That is adultery. That's a idolatry. Just like you ladies don't like your husbands being married to work. Yes? We talk about that? God doesn't like us being married to anything else either. We're his. And his alone. Last week, we began looking at the names of God. And we considered the title of God. And we considered the name of God. Um, as it is from the beginning that God has declared it. And we saw that the title of God is being used as El, Eloah, or Elohim. And it's the Hebrew word meaning God. But that word derives from the concept of being mighty, okay, is what a lot of people would say. And I, I turned around and said, but maybe it's just that the, the concept of being mighty derived from the, the term for God. You know, why do we, you know, we don't have to listen to the secular theorists, you know, for we just go to the, 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 the word and get our definitions. And what, what came first? God. In the beginning, God. Okay? And so God brought everything into existence, how? By speaking it, okay? Is there anything more mightier than God? No. And so, I mean, when people want to put together language, what do you think that they would use then as a, uh, as a reference point for might? Makes sense to me, God, right? I mean, anyways. But who am I? I'm not a scholar. So, anyways, but it's El, Eloah, and Elohim is his title. That is what he's referred to as. And then we looked at various things that went along with that. We considered the importance of the title. But where we want to go as we continue this is his name, and we want to continue to looking at the concept of his name. His name in the Hebrew is Yahweh. 
Yahweh. That is what he declared his name to be. Yahweh is the one who exists. He is the one who is. And as he said to the prophet Isaiah, before me there were no gods, neither shall there be any after me. He alone is. And the primary um, proof that God exists is you exist. If God ceased to be, everything else would cease to be. We're told in the book of Colossians that in Christ, that all things have their being and their consistency. He holds all things together. He is the one who who is. And so last week we considered the, um, the importance of his name and the fact that it is the direct representation of God. And so in the Old Testament, when you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is his name. That is the term Yahweh. That is his name. And the Jews were, were afraid of using the Lord's name in vain. And so instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai, Okay, which is the term for master or lord. And so then that, that concept then came over from he, the Hebrew, from the Jewish people. Then through um, Germanic, the Germanic languages were Yiddish. If you've heard of Yiddish, that's kind of a Germanic Jewish kind of concept there. And then over into English. And so that's why in your Old Testaments, you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The proper translation would be to make that a capital Y, capital H, capital W, and capital H. His name is Yahweh. Okay, that's his name. That's who he is. Okay? And to say his name is not to abuse it. If, you, if we come in, in, in to contact and we have a, a conversation, it's not abusive for me to call Tim, Tim. Make sense? But if, if in talking to you, I go, Tim! Man. Now, was I really talking to him? No. I was what? I was abusing his name. Do you get it? And so to misuse God's name is to not be thinking about him when I am referring to him. It is the name that he has chosen to refer to himself as. There's a reason why Timothy is Timothy. He's Timothy Abram. There's a reason why Benjamin is Benjamin Asher. There's a reason why Andrew is Andrew Philip. There's a reason why Anastasia is Anastasia Caris. I've given them names for a reason. They have purposes behind their names. Chances are, there's a purpose why you're called what you're called. Your mom or your daddy had a reason to call you. It may have been their best friend's name. Maybe somebody was important. It may be that they simply just what? Like the name. Okay? I would challenge you that as you have more children in the future, okay, to th- think about why you call your children, why you call them. A name is important. People are going to be referring to that, that, that People are going to be referring them by that term all their lives. Does that make sense? And so God, being God, chose the term by which he wanted to be called. And that's the one who is. The one who is. That's who he is. Now, it's important as well because it's not to be misused. And God said that he would not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. God is going to hold us accountable for the reverence that we give to his name. Now, I think it's amazing. If you ever um, do any studies in the Messianic areas of people's beliefs, Messian, uh, Messianism, Messi- Messianic theology is another branch of um, Christianity and sometimes just pseudo-fake Christianity because they start to deny the deity of Christ. Um, 
But one of the things that you'll see that they do a lot is they'll say they'll write G hyphen D or L hyphen R D so that they're not using his name in vain. Does that seem silly to you? Right. In other words, it, it, it's kind of like God doesn't know to put an O there. Anyways, I, I just, I, anyways, I, I don't know. I just, I, and, and I understand. I'm not judging their intent. I mean, that's, that's just that's their heart. But I look at it and I go, that's legalism, man. <laughs> that is just legalism. I mean, and so it's not okay. If you guys want to call me Bob, call me Bob. You know, I like my name. God, you know, my, my folks gave me the name of Bob, and I've been going by that for 49 years, and I'm kind of partial to it. Just don't call me Bobby. Anyways, um, <laughs> watch it, dude. And, uh, huh, what's that? B-B, yeah, just B-B. You know, but my name is a lot easier to say backwards than it is forwards. Anyway, so we'll go on. Um, but, but the name is important. It's important to you, right? I mean, you want me to call you by your name. Now, in that concept of the importance of God's name, God has chosen to ascribe his name to various items throughout history and in this world. And I think it'd be kind of neat to look at those things, four things that he's chosen to ascribe his name to. And so we want to look at these things, several items that he's chosen to ascribe his name to. First of all, his temple. Now, we're going to slide through, through this one. We're going to spend more time on um, some of these other ones. But in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 9 to 14, we read, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? Isn't that kind of cool? Do not know. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Stop for a moment, okay, before you go on. This is so much hinting of Romans chapter 5 and 6, isn't it? Romans chapter 5, we're saved by grace. And so therefore, since I'm saved by grace and I can't lose my salvation, I can do what? I can do anything I want. I can sin all I want because I won't lose my salvation. And so Paul says what? Shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it not be so. And that's what, I mean, it's no different. It's happening there with the Jews as well. And he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense? Will you what? Will you sin and follow after other gods? And walk after God's do you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. <laughs> in other words, you're our God. It's a done deal. We believe the covenants. We believe the truth of it. You will not what? You won't forsake us. That's exactly right. And so they're holding God in what? Contempt. The psalmist says, deliver me from presumptuous sins. We presume upon the grace of God. James says in James chapter 1 that no man can say that when, he's draw, that when he sins that he's drawn, that, 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 that God made him do that, that God tempted him, but rather that we were drawn away of our own lusts. We did it ourselves. The devil didn't make him do it. I did it. I chose to sin. And so they, they're doing the same thing. They said, they're going to come to this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Have you ever, ever heard anybody else talk about that passage? Jesus, huh? Jesus entered into the temple, and he started whipping and scourging everybody and, and overturning the money changers' uh, 
tables and, and driving the people out who were selling things, who were having businesses in, in a church, businesses in the temple. And he says, you know, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. <sighs> Become a den of thieves in your eyes, but now go, go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it. Not what others did to it, but what I did to it. In other words, God, again, like in Sunday school, when we were talking about how God was going to use the nation of Assyria to enact his judgment upon Judah. He says, look what I did. Look what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says Yahweh, I, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Do you get what God's saying? It's the same concept that he said to, to the, the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, I know your works. I know how awesome you've served me. I know how you've, you've tested those who said they're apostles and said they're not. He says, but I have one thing against you. You lost your first love. And if you don't repent, if you don't change the way you think, and return from whence you have fallen, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. God says, this is my house. It's called by my name. It's like if you go to 413 Padrick Street. It's my house. Well, it's not really my house. It's Wachovia's house, or Bank of America, or whoever it is. And, and beyond them, Columbia County and the state of Georgia, they all decide they, they own it too. But it's my house. You get it? It's my house. And so, you know, with Judge Overstreet, a week and a half ago, somebody came into what? My house. His house. And they paid for it. But it's my house. If I came home from Canada, right, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I find out that there was a bunch of other people in my house doing things that I didn't want, what do you think I would do? I would get scourges, and I would get whips, and I would overturn tables, and I would be kicking them out of my house. Actually, I'd probably go into where, where you know, my friend Smith and Wesson live and, and grab them and, 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 and get some help getting them out. But anyways, but the point is, it's my house. And God says beyond that, it's called by his name. God chose to ascribe his name to the temple. I want you to put this in your memory bank. Because today... There is also the temple of God, not the one in Jerusalem. But Paul tells us, don't you know that you are what? Bought with a price in your temple of the Holy Spirit? We'll come back to that later. But God has chosen to place his name upon his temple. And again, it is a representation of who he is. And so God said to them, you are abusing my temple, that has my name on it, and that's not how I want to be represented in this world. And so I'm going to do what? I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to take it out. Not only his temple, but his city. Again, in Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 29, we read, For behold, I bring to calamity, I, I begin to bring calamity on this city, the city which is called by my name, and and should you be utterly unpunished, 
You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. And then in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we see, Oh my God, this is Daniel praying, he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds and because of your great mercies. And so both the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Daniel understood that the city of Jerusalem was a special possession belonging to Yahweh. It was the place where Yahweh chose to place his name. Again, it was supposed to be a physical representation, if you would, of the righteousness of God on earth. Do you get that? And the inhabitants of Yahweh's city, Jerusalem, began to give themselves over to false gods, to other pleasures. And God said, I will not allow my city, where my name is established, be that way. And so what did Yahweh do? He handed them over. He handed them over to Assyria, to Egypt, to Babylon. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll see two different sides of that account. As we saw this morning from Isaiah chapter 7, yes? Did God send Assyria to wipe out Judah? Yes or no? Those who were in, in, No, he didn't. Yes, he did, but no, he didn't. How, why did Assyria come? Because Judah invited them. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and so a lot of times God's judgment upon us is not him volitionally just wiping us out. It's him taking his hand off and saying, fine. You want to be God? You be God. You do it the way you want to do it. And then we bring what? Destruction upon ourselves. And that's what happened with Assyria and Judah. And so God says the same thing. He says, I'm not going to allow my, my, my city, which is called by my name, to, to, to go through that. The two we want to focus on primarily this morning are these next two. That God has chosen to place his name upon his Messiah as well. This is of incredible importance. We've talked a little bit about this um, during this series. I talk a lot about this just in general. I don't think there's, again, a more important topic. Because um, Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may what? Know you, the only true God, in what? In Jesus Christ, whom you sent. But who is Jesus Christ? He is God. And God, Yahweh, chose to place his name upon his Messiah. And this began all the way back in Genesis 18, okay, even before that. We know that there are indicators of it. So turn with me to Genesis 18, where the the fact of Yahweh's coming to the world in person was going to begin to be demonstrated. Genesis 18. I love this passage um, when Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons come to the door. Um, Because honestly, in the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah Witness Bible, they can't get away from this. They just can't get away from it. Okay. Beginning verse 1. Then Yahweh, 
Remember that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's his name. Okay? Then Yahweh appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, now note, that's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's capital L, small O-R-D. All he said there was Adonai. Abraham, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He doesn't know this is Yahweh yet. Get it? What did he see? Three men. He saw three men coming to him. Okay. Now we know from verse 1 that Yahweh, what? appeared to him at, at, at the, uh, the trees of Mamre, at the Terebinth trees, right? Abraham doesn't know that yet. He sees three men. He bows himself down. That was their cultural custom at the time. Okay? He bows himself down to them and says, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by. This is, he's practicing hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is lover of strangers. It's not lover of your friends. We think hospitality is when you have your friends over and you play games. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is when you bring somebody over that you don't know. That's hospitality. And he says, so he's, he's feeding them, okay? He says, after that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant, they said, and they said, do as you have said. So Abraham, verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah and said, quickly, Make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they what? As they ate. Now this is cool stuff, okay? I mean, don't, don't, I mean, there are some things that are very mundane as we read. But these three guys ate food. Got it? They're eating steaks. They're having, they're having yogurt or, or cottage cheese, okay? Um, and they're having bread. And we're going to find out in just a moment who these three guys are. Who are they? You know it. Come on, 2020. Angels and God. So, so Yahweh himself and two angels are eating. You know, you ever have the debate, do angels eat? They did there. You know, did God eat? He did there. Uh, no, he doesn't say eat. Actually, what he says is, is the, what the law is. He has a misnomer. What the law says is don't cook the meat in his mother's milk. Since they're worried about that, the legalism of that is because just in case that the cheese that I'm eating came from the same goat, goat, not cow, but goat, okay? Remember, put yourself where you're at, okay? It comes from the same goat as the meat I'm eating, I better not do that, just in case I might just, by some statistical magnet, uh, mystery, ha- be, be breaking this command. So the command actually says, don't cook the meat in the mother's milk. That's what the command says. It doesn't say you're not allowed to eat uh, meat and dairy. So check me out on that. If I'm wrong, let me know. I'm, I'm okay with that. But, but Yeah, they are. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, this is before the law anyway. Moses wasn't around yet. See, Abraham wasn't under the law. He could do what he wanted. Anyways, <laughs> I mean, isn't that what Paul said? Abraham was saved by faith, not works of the, the law, you know? 
then the law came. And all of a sudden, you put yourself under this bind, you know, and, it, and it, you know, what God told you wasn't bad enough, you know, and it wasn't really evil. It was really a, a book of love, not a book of legalism. But they made it into legalism, you know? And so, anyways, that's good. Thanks, Brooke. In verse 7, it says, And Abraham ran to the herd, took the tender calf. Oh, I did all that. Um, and so they were eating it, verse 9, or verse 8. In verse 9, it says, Then they said to him, Where? Now, I want to stop for a moment, because I never saw this till this week. I may be making a mountain out of a molehill here, okay? So, so forgive me if you look at it and go, I didn't see that one, Bob. But anyways, Then they said to him, now, is it three guys talking in unison? Is there, is, there a, is there a choral and timphony happening here where all together, you know, it, it's me and Andrew and, and, and Timmy on three. Ready? One, two, three. Where is Sarah? I'll oh, see, we didn't even do that right. Anyways, it was kind of, I mean, so, you know, were they all putting the mouth up at the same time saying, and where is Sarah, your wife? Have that in your brain. Where is Sarah, your wife? So Abraham said, he said, here in the tent. And then what? He, now I understand there's a capital H there, okay, because the translator becomes an interpreter and says that that's God. And I think it is God. It's Yahweh, okay? But that's, you can't really prove it based upon a pronoun. Does that make sense? Okay? But in he said, I will certainly return to you. Now I think this is really interesting. They ask, where is Sarah, your wife? And then he says, I'm going to come back a year from now. I think there may be a little sign of what? A triunity happening here. Because who's talking? God. And even in that physical manifestation of God that's happening here, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, there is the indicator that God is Echad, that God is one, but he's one comprising Parts comprising others. Uh, again, that you might say, ah, Bob, that's stretching it. Maybe so. I wouldn't stake my, my case for tri- the triunity of God on it, but I think it's pretty cool. Anyways, and so he says, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed in the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. Now stop for a moment, okay? Other than verse 1, have we seen at all that one of these guys is Yahweh? Well, okay, good. Okay, so we start to have some indicators that there's something special. But it, it, it could be that the word of who Abraham is has gotten out, you know, and, and they just know him. But other than verse 1, we don't know this is Yahweh. And a Jehovah Witness and a Mormon will tell you that Yahweh appeared to him in a vision kind of thing. This was, you know, so there were three men there. But, but it, Yahweh's not one of them. Now we're getting to the point where you turn around to them and say, but what about this? And it says, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. When's the last time that God was communicating to you inside your brain and your wife answered? With the right answer. Come on, I mean, you know, that she really knew what God said to you. 
A lot of times we think, husbands think for wives, and wives think for husbands, and we think we're the Holy Spirit for the other one. But, you know, I mean, it didn't happen. There's a conversation happening where? At the tent door. They're, they're, they're sitting there eating, right? And Sarah's kind of hiding inside, you know? And, and Yahweh says, at this time next year, I'm going to come back, and, and Sarah, your wife, is going to have a baby. And Sarah does what? You know? She laughs. She's inside a tent. Now, you all that, that are behind this big, thick wall, on Wednesday nights having your adult Bible study, while we're in here quietly having our children's ministries, a lot of laughing going on now, huh? So you got two sheets of half-inch drywall, insulation, and everything there, right? Can you hear the kids play? All right, so now... You know, I love this when we go camping, because we tent camp, you know. And you think that that tent is, gives you all this privacy. Isn't it amazing the things you can hear in a, at a campsite? Anyways, you know, it was when we went family camping, you know, and, and people are, you know, you have all these families in their tents. There are no privacies, you know. You know what happens at 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, so Sarah laughs. God hears it. I'm speaking humanly here, right? And Yahweh says to Abraham, because that's the two people having a conversation, Abraham, why does Sarah laugh? Is there anything too hard for Yahweh to do? I think it's interesting that Yahweh didn't talk to Sarah. He talked to the spiritual head. But Sarah, knowing that she was found out, I'm reading between lines here, right? She knows she's found out, and so what does she do? I didn't laugh. Now we laugh at Sarah, right? But don't we treat God that way? We act like, no God, I really didn't think that. No God, I, that really wasn't my intent. You know, because we're in our tent, aren't we? Remember, you can't see me. You think you can see me, but you can't see me. You can't kill me. I'm invincible. You may stop me from living in this tent. You know, when one day my tent's going to go away. But I'm going to live forever. You can't kill me. Isn't that an awesome thing? I'm invincible. I mean, the worst thing the world can do to me is the best thing they can do to me. They're going to send me to be with Jesus. Isn't that cool stuff? And so here I'm living in my tent, like Sarah. In her tent, if you would. And how many times I like to do what? No, God. That, that really wasn't my intent. You ever wonder what God thinks sometimes? I mean, if I, as a parent, listen to my kids sometimes and think, can you run, by the, run that by me just one more time? God's saying, huh? But the exciting thing that we're going to see, that we see here is what? That Yahweh comes in person to people on the earth. This is before Jesus. This is before the law. In this man who is standing there, for all intents and purposes, a man, right? I mean, that's what Abraham sees. For all intents and purposes, this man standing there declares himself to be who? Yahweh. He takes his name and he places it upon a man. The Messiah. This is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. Turn to Isaiah. Um, no, 
Yeah, well, yeah, Isaiah. Isaiah 48. Because we see it not only revealed to Abraham, but we see that Yahweh also reveals it through the prophets. Isaiah 48. Um, these next couple passages are so incredible. Again, write them down, mark them in your Bible, use them when you talk to the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, okay? Who love to tell you that, that you know, the Trinity, the triunity of God, that's just a, uh, that's just a modern phenomena. It's not true, it's not biblical. And I love to take them to the Old Testament and show it to them. You know? Because again, if Jesus isn't Yahweh, I, I'm just not a Christian. I'm, I'm not even a Jew. I, I'm just throwing it all away. I'm going to trash it all. I'm an atheist. I mean, God's a liar. You know? And so the, the Bible's not true. Isaiah 48, beginning of verse 12, we read for context here. If I can get to it in mine. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Who's talking? I assume God, wouldn't you? I mean, it certainly isn't Isaiah talking. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. This is definitely not Isaiah, is it? Definitely not Isaiah. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret. From the beginning, from the time it was, I was there. And now, listen to this. Yahweh speaking. And now, the Lord God in his spirit have sent me. Yahweh says, Yahweh says, and now Yahweh Elohim and his spirit have sent me. Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? I believe in the triunity God. I believe that God has revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they being separate are still yet one, and they are all God. And Yahweh, that is his name. That is what he's declared, right? He will not share his glory with another. But Yahweh says, and now Yahweh Elohim, the sovereign Yahweh, in his spirit, has sent him. Prophetic. Referring to Jesus coming. Turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. Keep going toward the New Testament. Okay? And just before you get to it, you'll run into Zechariah. Chapter 2, Zechariah 2, look at verses 10 and 11. It says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says who? Yahweh. Many nations shall be joined to Yahweh in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, now listen to this. Now that's profound as it is. Yahweh saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell amongst you, right? But look at what he says. And then you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me to you. Yahweh says this. Yahweh says, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your midst. And you, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me to you. You've got to go back three weeks and kind of remember Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. He's the big God. Okay? Like Yahweh Elohim. And so it's not three different gods. It's not a bigger God and smaller gods. It's one God. And yet Yahweh says that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent him. And then drop that back to chapter 12 of Zechariah while you're there. 
We're going to look at verse 10, but just so we can see the context, let's look at verse 4 to make sure who's talking. In verse 4 we read, In that day, saith Yahweh, I will strike every horse with confusion, and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Now drop down to 10, because we know that's Yahweh speaking. And he says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And so Yahweh says that when he comes, he will be what? Pierced. And every eye will see him. So he was revealed to Abraham um, in the plains of Mamre there. He was revealed through the prophets to us. He's also revealed by Paul. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 5, we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form morphe, the very nature, the very essence, God. Again, you, we don't see things in the English sometimes that are there in the Greek, but there are different words for form in the Greek. There is the word morphe, which is the very nature, who you are. I have, my morphe has never changed. But my schemati, my form, my schemati, my outward appearance has changed. I don't look like what I did when I was um, in, in kindergarten. I don't look like what I looked like in sixth grade. In fact, I don't even look like what I did a couple weeks ago when I had hair. And a bad barber trip this, year, this week. Anyways, Marcia says, you don't, you don't need, you're not going to need to go to the barber for another six weeks. Anyways, um, but my schemati, what? Changes. What I look like on the outside changes. And so that's what's being talked about. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very morphe, the very inner being God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with him, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form or the exterior appearance, the schemati of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the cross. So Jesus, when he came, being equal wasn't robbery to him. Because he was God. In other words, if it, if it wasn't his, it would be thievery. But since it was his, it wasn't stealing. Does that make sense? You take my Bible home and don't give it back. You stole my Bible. Isn't that do you know? And speaking of that, this is an old free thing. Do you know what the most stolen thing in the, in the, in the United States is? Bibles. Bibles. Isn't that something? You know? <laughs> I don't know. It's just, yeah. We say good. Yeah, it's great that they want to get the word of God. But, but how can you steal something that tells you thou shalt not steal? It just doesn't, you know... I don't get it. Anyways, so, <laughs> hopefully they'll learn that. That's right. Um, but, but here he is. He's, he doesn't have to count robbery. It's his. He is God, right? And, he's, and he comes in the form of a man. And, and then he's learned in disobedience, right? We're told. And he, he dies for us to the point of the cross. Verse 9. That's what it says now. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name. Now, again... We, translators become interpreters, okay? Um, this wasn't written in English originally. This was written in Koine Greek, okay? And so there, was, there were men who got together and they translated it from the Koine Greek and brought it into English. If this was in the Old Testament, they probably would have capitalized the N, given him the name, which is above what? Every name. What name? is above every name. Yahweh. Yahweh's already declared that. Yahweh has told us. We've seen that 
three weeks ago, and then earlier today. I mean, Yahweh is his name. That every knee, that at that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And before you think that that name was Jesus, was Jesus is the name, look at what it says. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now understand, in the Greek, there is no word Yahweh. That's a Hebrew word. In the Greek, when they bring over the word Yahweh, translating it from the Hebrew, from the Old Testament passages, they use the word kyrios. Again, using that same practice of putting Lord in. Remember how I said they used the word Adonai because they were afraid of using the word Yahweh? Well, in the Greek, that word is kyrios. Okay, that's the word for Lord, master. And so they would bring that in. And so I challenge you, sometimes you go back to John chapter 1, where, where you read that John the Baptist says, he's the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it's all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's kyrios in the Greek. They could have just made that small L, small O, small R, small D. You know, it's just Lord. Same thing that's here. It's just that the translator didn't interpret this from the fulfillment of the passage of Isaiah that it's actually from. Turn back to Isaiah 45. You just came from Isaiah, okay? But go back there. See, this is a fulfillment from Isaiah 45. Yahweh says, verse 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Why? For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn, taken an oath, confessed by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, in other words, it's not going to be changed, that to who? Who's me? Yahweh. Every knee will bow, and every tongue shall take an oath, that every tongue will confess. Yahweh says that it's to his name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we're told that God, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Tzapioth, has given to Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, incarnate presence of God, the name that is above every name. We see this as well declared by Jesus himself. I'm going to skip those passages in Titus and Romans. You can go look at them later. But Jesus himself declares this. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to um, save this last point for next week. Okay? And so, in John 8... In John chapter 8, in verse 56 to 59, we know a a passage that everybody goes to. And it says, Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now again, you see the capitals here. Capital I, capital A, capital M, right? What it says in the Greek is ego me. Ego me. Ego is I. Ami is I am. 
Okay, and so you could say ego me, and you're just saying it emphatically. I even I am going to the store. Whatever. Okay. But if I wanted to say, I am that I am, and that's God's name, the way I would state that is, ego me in the Greek. Does that make sense? And so the translators interpreted this, I think, correctly and properly. That what Jesus was saying, it was, he probably said it in Aramaic or Hebrew, but was translated into Greek, okay, that he used the name. That, that he declared that he was the I am at this point. We know that based upon the fact that the Jews took up stones to, to kill him. Yeah. Now what's interesting is that the translators didn't interpret it properly the two other times he declared himself as I am in the same chapter. You say, really? Yeah. Go back up to verse 24. I'm going to start at verse 23 for context. It says, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, and then you see the word he, don't you? But it's all italicized, that's exactly right. And when you see a word italicized, it means it's not in the original language. So get rid of it. Jesus said, unless you believe, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Could have capitalized that. Capital I, capital A, capital M. If you do not believe, I am. You're going to die in your sins. And then he says it as well in verse 28. Verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And what do we read in Zechariah chapter 12? You will look upon the one whom you have pierced. Jesus said, listen, if you don't believe that I am, if you don't believe in the deity, that if you don't believe that the name of God is ascribed to me, meaning that what? He is God. You're going to die in your sins. And when finally you look upon me, being lifted up, you'll begin to realize what? What Isaiah was talking about in chapter 53. He took upon himself our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then finally the conversation has to come to this climax where he puts it right after him. He says, before Abraham was, I am! And the Jews said what? Enough is enough. And they want to kill him. Isn't that incredible? What a mind-boggling thing. When he stood before the Sanhedrin, before they crucified him, and they said, tell us plainly if you're the Son of God. And he said, what? I am. When they came to him in the garden, and they said, you know, who are you looking for? And, and, and they said, Jesus. Jesus said, what? I am. And what did they do? They fell. They fell. I think he used the name. And here he's in Sanhedrin. Tell us plainly. And he says, I am. And then he turned around and they say what? 
You've heard them plainly yourself. What more evidence do we need? And I ask myself, how many times is the presence of God in my midst? And I really don't want it there. Because it's cramping my style. There's some things that you probably wouldn't do if Jesus really was with you. Think about it. The movies that you go to, the, the, the songs that you listen to. If Jesus was there, would you be listening to it? Would you be watching it? Or would you say, well, maybe we ought to watch Facing the Giants instead? You know? Maybe we ought to listen to um, the, the Pensacola Christian Choir sing, you know, when we all get to heaven, <laughs> whatever. You get what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like we, we want to change. God has chosen to ascribe his name to his Messiah. Jesus isn't just a man. And I know that may be old hat. That's, I'm preaching to the choir here, right? But sometimes I think we don't give that the, the weight that it really is. And when we pray, we don't recall who we're praying to. He is God. He has also ascribed his name to his children. We'll, we'll bring this up next week and talk about it because I, I want to talk about each of these passages and the importance that it is. But suffice it to say, for, for now, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then God has adopted you as his child. You are called by his name. His Messiah, who is called by his name, we're told is your brother. You've been given that privilege of sonship to be called by his name. How important is that relationship to you? We'll talk more about that next week. And I'll ask the same questions next week. But meditate upon it through the week. And then, is there sin that you need to confess and turn from? You are representing the God of the universe. Remember we talked about it? We'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it next week, about being that temple thing. You're the temple of God. And just as he was zealous for the place where his name was placed, so he is zealous for the holiness of his children and where his name is placed today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us not in a very um, non-relational way, a very stoic way. God but that you have told us your name. You have ascribed your name to those things which are important to you, to your temple, to your city, and to your Messiah. Jesus, I know that you are God in the flesh. It is mind-boggling to me to understand how that which is eternal can find himself into that which is finite but I believe that your word is true. Your testimony has been acknowledged by hundreds and thousands of witnesses to your resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to ascribe to you the majesty, the greatness that you are worthy of because of who you are and that which is attributed to your name. And that truly, Father, at the name of Jesus, at the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Lord, help us to be those this day, not being forced, but from our hearts desiring to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.